All right, Charles, no opening soundbite this week. I just want to jump right in because as we've been talking about uh, at the end of the last episode and on our Patreon, this is the episode in which this is the episode where Rob Morrow, who plays Joel, the character of Joel, leaves the show. That's the last time we see Joel. Um, from my memory, I don't think he's mentioned after this. It, it could be possible, but I know that he's not on the bill. This is the last appearance of Rob Morrow in Northern Exposure, and it's a very pivotal episode. And uh, if I can remember, at the end of our last episode, Charles, you predicted from the title of the quest that Joel will be going on a quest. I think you said he might be doing some quest in Mananash, and that's not too far off. He's searching for, uh, what does he call it, the jeweled city of the north, as we'll talk about later in this episode, uh, somewhere in the Aleutians, somewhere you know in the wilderness of Alaska. But uh, yeah, I mean, going into this, not knowing what to expect, Charles, what did you think? Yeah, I would say that it ended kind of the way that I thought in the end result, which mm. is that Joel goes back to New York City. Uh, it, it would be really strange if he chose, I don't know, like Seattle or Houston or whatever, American City. He had to have returned home. So I knew that that was going to be the conclusion. I just didn't know how we were going to get there. And overall, I think that they really should have scrapped the other two plot lines in order to bolster this one main plot line. Mm -hmm. I understand what they were trying to go for. Like they were using Chris as the stand-in for the townsfolk, possibly the audience themselves. They were trying to interweave all of these different things with like the new and the old with Phil Capra and Joel Fleischman. But honestly, I, I feel like the fallout could have been done in the next episode. I, I feel like I, we really should have focused entirely on this. Kind of similar to Three Amigos where it was just that one plot line. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think they could have done that. Yeah, I'll say I think I agree with you, especially with the – um not that I didn't like the Alaskan Highway food review, like the magazine food review that uh, Michelle is doing. I just think like, you know, that could have been any other episode. It didn't necessarily need to play out in this episode. And with the Chris plot line, it really irked me at first, but I really did enjoy the reveal at the end, which we'll get to talk about. Uh, having said that, I like what you just said about like maybe this could have been the next episode, which would have been the aftermath. So yeah, that that could have been an option as well. But uh, I'll say I enjoyed I enjoyed what the outcome was from the Chris plotline. I think uh, it, maybe it did eat up a lot of airtime. I mean, there also was you know the fact that this episode is called the Quest. It sort of models itself after a quest like the Odyssey or the Holy Grail. So there also were moments in the episode that are just kind of like uh, the plot playing in sort of comparison, like parallel to those stories rather than necessarily looking into the characters, Joel and Maggie. It's more just kind of like following a pre-written plot, sort of like a retelling. Uh, so there is definitely things in the Joel plot line that, for lack of a better term, like maybe eat up like more valuable time for these characters. Uh, but it is just such a northern exposure thing to sort of like go into this weird fantasy, uh, this, you know, adventure of the Odyssey or um, the Holy Grail and sort of combine that with like a real life, uh, sort of like having this real life fairy tale together. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. It is a northern exposure exit. Mm -hmm. That is an honest to God, very great example of what encapsulates the show. I'm very pleased with how they did it. Yeah. This screams northern exposure. Yes, very true to form for the show. I'm glad that it ended this way for Joel. Almost like, did this really happen? Or what really happened is open to interpretation because of the sort of fanciful, bizarre scenes that play out towards the end of uh, Joel's plotline here. Let's jump in to the episode and we can talk about each plotline in order here, starting with uh, the credits for the episode. Again, it's called The Quest and it's the 15th episode of season six. There are eight more episodes after this. So eight more episodes with no Joel. As, as I said, maybe it's possible that they might mention him, but he's not going to be on screen at all. Uh, and I, I don't think they do mention him, but we'll be diving into those episodes next. For this week, The Quest, directed by Michael Vittis. Uh, he is a director who's worked on Northern Exposure in season four, the episode Learning Curve. In season five, Might Makes Right, Una Volta in L'Inverno. Also in season six, Sons of the Tundra. Today's episode, of course. And then he also directs the second to last episode of the series, the writers are familiar, Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider, co-executive producers of the show. Uh, you know, they've been here all throughout writing great episodes of Northern Exposure, some very key uh, plot points, some fan favorites. Finally, the air date of the episode is February 8th, 1995. And just chronology in the world of Northern Exposure, I noted down somewhere in here, I think Bernard mentions uh, that... You know, whatever the incident that happens with Chris in this episode happened on January 4th. So we're still in January in the world of Sicily, though the air date for this episode, February 8th. Yeah, relatively close in the cold, cold yeah. wilderness of Alaska right there, as we see in this episode. Yeah. And overall, I'm glad that it's in the entrusting hands of Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider right there. I hope that it continue for the last eight episodes right here, get us to a safe landing with Northern Exposure, but if not, there's a really good one for them to end on. Mm -hmm. Well, Charles, we typically approach these episodes by separating each plot line, kind of talking about them individually, unless, of course, whenever they sort of interweave very closely, but I think these are very separate. As we mentioned, We've got the food review for The Brick that Michelle is writing for Alaskan Highways magazine. We've got uh, Chris having a bit of uh, conflict, you could say, with Dr. Phil Capra here. He's uh, going to be trying to sue Dr. Phil for malpractice. And uh, finally, The Quest with Joel and Maggie. Which would you like to start with? I guess we save the best for the last, right? Right, yes. Because I feel like if we talk about, you know, <laughs> Joel's departure and we're like, all right, that was that was really sad. All right, time to talk about food reviews. Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's, uh, <laughs> let's start with the food review. Then we'll go into Chris because it kind of does, uh, you know, have to deal with the effect of Joel leaving in a way. Mm -hmm. And then we'll finish out with Joel. So starting with the food review at The Brick. It begins with, I think, Maurice entering into the brick. Phil and Michelle, I noted down, are also in the brick at a table, I think sharing some white wine or something like that. Maurice rushes in and goes straight to Holling and Shelley to notify them that Alaskan Highways Magazine is going to be doing a food review of the brick. In fact, they're doing food reviews for like all the 
restaurants and eateries in the area. And uh, if we get a really nice review for the brick, then it's going to attract much more business. So Maurice wants Holling and Shelley basically to go above and beyond to make this a great review. Also, something we should point out is Maurice mentions that Michelle, Michelle Capra, is going to be writing this review. Yeah. What a great what a great era to be living in where you can trust the magazine reviews. Because nowadays, whenever I I try to look up reviews for like a restaurant or like a new joint that popped up, and I have no idea if the place is good or not. Because yeah. like it'll get flooded. Like, okay, okay, let me let me frame it this way. Yeah. A lot of times people like to say, like, oh, if it's got like five star review, but there's only like 10 reviews on it then it can't be trusted. Whereas if it has 500 reviews and it's got 4.5 stars out of five, then that can be trusted. I think you can't trust either one of them. Because yeah. <laughs> I think that like there is something up where it looks like it gains the system on both ends. Because I have looked up plenty of new joints recently and been like, oh, it's got a lot of great reviews on both like little amounts and large amounts. And I have just been just disappointed. Like I, I feel mm-hmm. like I can't trust a word of the anonymity of the mob. Of the of the internet, whereas like you know, and in, in this you know nineteen what what is this nineteen ninety five nineteen ninety four yeah uh, in these idyllic halcyon days, here just have an authority figure be like <laughs> I went in there uh, I can you know testify that it was good and or bad someone with journalistic integrity like Michelle Capra she talks a little bit about that later in this episode and yeah I agree with you Charles I guess the solution is like at the end of the day it just like it just boils down to you, you have to try it for yourself. Don't go off anyone else's opinion. Well, like it, it, it boils down to like asking your friends yeah. if they've ever mm-hmm. been there. That's that is like the major one. If you ask someone you trust and be like, "Hey, have you been to like X restaurant? How do you think about it?" Because I, I don't know. I feel like they're all paid reviews or they're fake or something's up. Yeah. All right. Well, next scene in this plot line would be Michelle coming to the brick to uh, have her meal that she's going to you know, base her review on. And this is, um, I don't know if we mentioned it, but this is kind of like Maurice is secretly sort of trying to keep this on the down low with Holling and Shelley. Like not, we're not supposed to know that Michelle is doing this, but Maurice wants Holling and Shelley to know so that the review turns out good. It's going to bring in a lot of business to Sicily, uh, to the brick. It's going to be great if things go well. So Michelle is coming here to the brick and she's brought along Marilyn to be her sort of like tasting partner, I guess, so they can order more food and try, so Michelle can try more things. But kind of the the jig is up as soon as they get in there because it's pretty obvious, like immediately Shelly is trying to butter up Michelle, saying like, oh, you don't want to sit at the table. Why don't you sit in one of these like big, more inviting, comfortable booths? And Shelly goes so far as to like kicking Hayden out of the booth <laughs> to like get them in there. It's just at this point, I think it's obvious that Shelly knows what's up. Right. And they serve them things that I imagine are not typical of the menu. I know that they like to consider themselves as uh, people that know their way around a dish. So they, they know what like shiitake mushrooms are and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But it, it seemed over like over grand on what they were trying to serve these things that they were trying to play off to be like, yeah, we serve this every single day. It's like, I, I, I doubt it. Maybe once a week. <laughs> yeah. Howling brings in some crudite and country pate and he, you know, reads the menu out loud for them. The today's menu, it's a uh, grilled roughy with papaya salsa, entrecote of beef with shiitake mushrooms 
And then apparently they have the spa selection, skinless breast of chicken with cilantro and black beans. Now, this seemed like a perfect episode for Maurice to call Adam, to get Adam into the brick, because Adam's worked in the brick at least once, I feel like twice. Like, I feel like there are epi- multiple episodes where he's like cooking in the brick. Yeah, I can buy Adam cooking those dishes. Yeah. I'm not buying you two <laughs> cooking those dishes. That <laughs> yeah. ain't happening. Yeah, that's, that's definitely, yeah. Um, but yeah, Adam actually is in this episode uh, later, which we'll get to, in, in, but in Joel and Maggie's plot line. Um, yeah, as I said, the jig is up because at the end of this scene, after Holling and Shelly leave, it's Michelle and Marilyn sitting together. Michelle just kind of gives this look over to Marilyn and Marilyn says to Michelle, they know. So <laughs> they know that they know. But let's see, the next time, the next time we're talking about food in the brick, I think it's um, I think it's like when Michelle is writing the review and she's struggling. Like Phil is also not doing so hot because as I mentioned kind of earlier, we'll talk about it in the Chris plot line, but Chris is trying to sue Phil for medical malpractice. And um, he's talking to Michelle, like, you know, everything that we wanted to get away from, you know, in, in LA, it's it's all followed us here. You know, this lawsuit. Uh, I like what he says. He says, like, the lawsuit, that f- feeling of being slapped with the lawsuit sent me back to the 405, which I guess is the big highway with all the traffic, <laughs> you know, the famous... <laughs> Uh, LA traffic. And Michelle here is now writing this negative review for the brick. Well, the one thing I noted down was that apparently during this meal, Marilyn found buckshot in the uh, quote unquote beef. Like, was this even beef or just like local game or something? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that like there's a very interesting dichotomy that's happening here between Phil and Michelle, because Phil mentions that he's being taken back to the thing that he escaped from, which is this city life, mm-hmm. this place that is far less intimate and far more willing to just go immediately for the throat whenever things turn <laughs> south. So I imagine that like suing people doesn't happen often in Sicily. I imagine that most disputes are settled in a very personable, very intimate way where they say, hey, I'm sorry that it happened to you. Let's try to arrange this where like both of us get out of this situation to the best of our interests. Let's compromise. And Michelle's writing a review that is not intimate. She is writing a review in which she, even though she is a part of this town, she is trying to judge it as an outsider right there. Mm -hmm. So it immediately sets her apart right there. So one person, Phil, is trying to get away from the city, whereas Michelle is kind of implementing that type of style of looking at something in a microscope and dissecting it and trying to get herself away from a community aspect. Interesting. Because ordinarily, yeah. you don't need to write a review if you live in the place. This isn't for her. This is for the outsiders. Yeah. They're kind of going in two different directions in this scene. Uh, and it shows, you know, they're acting it. They're act the the actors are playing it out this way as well. It's pretty great. And Michelle is, you know, saying she's got her journalistic integrity to uphold. And Phil's like, "Sure, you can lie. Why can't you lie? Just lie. You know, everyone here in town is going to hate us. I'm already being sued, and you're going to write this bad review. We're going to be done for in Sicily." That's the end of that scene, I think, basically. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of turmoil for the Capras right now. But uh, Michelle will later go back into the brick. I think she's actually, she's like in her jogging attire. Uh, She's just come from jogging. 
Shelly and Holling are like seeing her enter and they're like, oh crap, she's back. And Eugene says, okay, yeah, this is, this is common. They usually come back to check on consistency. So they're like getting a second taste. And um, turns out that uh, according to Michelle, she's just here for some iced tea. She was jogging, but Shelly's nervous. They're like, okay, we got to pull whatever we got out of the freezer, like see what we can make. And uh, Holling is, you know, like, no, 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 she's just going to have whatever everyone else is having. You know, we got to keep this real, like it's the real brick. And again, like, like kind of like you were saying in the last scene where Michelle's going one direction and Phil's going another, Holling and Shelly seem to be arguing a lot about how to present the brick, you know, for this review. Holling brings out a bowl of like clam chowder or some, some sort of chowder. I think it's corn, corn chowder. chowder. Uh, much to Shelly's dismay, but uh, <laughs> they are like trying to strongly suggest that Michelle should eat this. And she's like, I've just been jogging. Does this have a lot of cream in it? And Holling's like, yes, double cream. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yeah, she, Michelle takes a, takes a little spoonful and politely tries to, I guess like feign, you know, delight. You know, this is a delicious bowl, but even that acting can't save uh, a hair, a strand of hair that she pulls out of her mouth that was in the soup, which spells like, I don't know, the end, like death for the brick. Right. And Holling does the very noble thing to say that, you know, don't blame Shelley, don't blame Eugene. You can put it all on me whenever you write the review of the brick. I'll go under, I'll be the captain of the ship. Yeah, Shelly storms off. Just let her write whatever she wants. And Holling is uh, like, you know, just I'll take the blame. And and Michelle is just sitting here kind of, I don't think she has any lines in response, but we see her reactions. It's clear she's, she's uh, what is she going to do, you know, in this situation? She loves Shelly. She loves Holling. And to see them all bent out of shape on this, what is she going to write in her review? Well, well, okay, <laughs> yeah. Like we both came in to say, well, she's going to be neutral on a review. She's going to write down three pitiful lines that, while correct, is not really the full picture. But, you know, in a way, it is the truth. It is the brick. It is located at this place. It is open at this time. So why don't you go eat there and find out for yourself? Yeah, I think the full review is uh, all the way down at the bottom. They've got other, you know, other restaurants have full pages written on them. For the brick, it's just all the way down at the bottom. Dinner fare plus local game dishes. Full bar. Open seven days, 6 a.m. to midnight. Uh, I think uh, Holling says, can't argue with that. They're, they're like so relieved to see that. And honestly, Charles, when we were talking about food reviews, I wanted to comment like, this is the kind of little blurb that to me is oftentimes the most enticing just because, you know, you you get a little bit, leaves a lot to the imagination, but you get a very short idea of like, how could you describe this thing in like four words or seven words? And then the rest of it is like, I got to see this for myself. But I guess a lot of those short reviews, you know, it's easy to just like look over and get lost. But if, if I see one that's written just the right way, it really uh, sticks out and I want to know more. Mm. Like I don't, I don't want to read about it. I just want to experience it. Right. I'll say that I'm a very simple person. <laughs> Not like simple as in like a dumb, I guess, because I, I think like the logo, like if it's enticing, mm -hmm. like if the coloring of the building looks right, like if the vibes are right, I feel like, yeah, let's go there. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Uh, 
Is that the last little thing with that? I'm trying to think because there's like stuff with Phil they too. Have, they have one little scene left and it's the final button for Michelle where she talks about the romantic notion of journalism. How mm-hmm. when she was younger, she thought that she could rise up to the ranks of, uh, what were they? Hemingway, Roundtable, one other, uh, like, Dorothy Parker. Okay. And she was saying that like, you know, there's like a speaking truth to power, trying to communicate to your readership what your opinions are that you hope that you can fashion into the truth. And while she isn't lying in what she printed, it's not realistically the full picture of what she experienced. So she has, she has to uh, let go. Yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it. Phil tells her, you're a good person. And she says, also, you know, we live here. So if Shelly and Holling were to get mad at me, there's no other place to eat lunch. <laughs> um, but yeah, she's she is letting go. She is... Uh, you know, dropping her standards just a little bit in this in this uh, situation. And it's all in an effort to fill in with the town because all they really want to do is assimilate and take in the role of what Dr. Fleischman left behind. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Uh, there's, you know, we got still got eight more episodes with the Capras. Um, but let's bring it back to the beginning and go down the Chris and Phil plot line. It starts with Dr. Phil inspecting Chris's ear. Chris has an impaction of earwax. And uh, I've had that before, Charles. I think you've had it before. We've talked about it. It can be very painful um, trying to get that get earwax out. Um, it seemed to be a pretty simple operation, at least in Chris's case. You know, Phil is very carefully and uh, very efficiently you know, gets Chris in and out. Chris is uh, very impressed in this scene by Phil's bedside manner. You know, he he compares Phil to Joel, saying that uh, Joel would always like, you know, all right, you're in and you're out. Like, you know, we, it was very impersonal in a way. The, the end of the scene, Phil says, I don't know, Joel seemed like a caring physician to me. But yeah, I mean, this is definitely just sort of like the seed crystal of what's about to unfurl for the rest of the plot line. Right. I will say that I had this one done recently. I had this done multiple times in my Mm -hmm. life. I have small ear canals and I always sleep on the right side of my pillow. So naturally my right ear gets impacted with a lot of earwax. Yeah. They never do the way that feel, they they don't do it the way that feel does it, Mm -hmm. which is just inserting a, I forgot the name of that little thing. They say say it later. Yeah. They don't do that. What they use is uh, a water pick. So they make me tilt my head to the side and I hold this plastic container against my shoulder so they can catch all the stuff that's fallen out. And then they put the water pick into it and they blast high pressured water <laughs> into my ear. And it, if your ear is infected, it will cause you immense pain. The most pain you've ever felt in your entire life. If your ear is not infected, it's just a strange feeling. Because mm-hmm. you're just going to feel like a torrent of water pouring inside your head. And then all the earwax comes tumbling out. Though I will have to say that the last time I did it, it, it must vary from clinic to clinic. The last time that I did it, they had me sign a paper saying, hey, if anything happens to your ear, like what happened to Chris on this episode, Ooh. supposedly, then we're not liable for it. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> they said that. They were like, this is standard procedure. It literally never happens, but this is just for our own safety. And I was like, yeah, it's fine. I've had this done multiple times. I highly doubt anything's going to happen. So 
evidently clinics and, you know, small time places do try to protect themselves from what just happened right here. Yeah. I mean, it, it happened in this episode. So, uh, that was like the, the first case now, um, but, uh, you know, it's a precedent, I guess that they need to have you sign a waiver for that. Yeah. Well, the next thing we know, Phil is in his office and Bernard enters, introduces himself as Chris's brother of course, like Phil and Bernard have never met. So we have like a short little moment where Phil's like, oh, well, you're his brother. That's crazy. Um, but Bernard is here and he means business. He says he's representing Chris, who is suing Phil for malpractice. Uh, there is symptoms of dizziness, loss of balance, nausea. He says loss of consortium, the ability to have sex. And uh, it also turns out that they're not just suing for compensation, but they also are asking for exemplary damages. So I don't know what all that means necessarily, but it sounds like it's just more and more stacked on top of itself. Yeah, from my understanding, it seems like they're going above and beyond than what is like, what should be owed to you. They're like, we're going for the whole house. Yeah. And um, later we'll see Bernard taking over K-Bear for Chris. I mean, Chris is there with him. Chris has this huge bandage wrapped around his entire head, like his ear and his like jaw. Uh, so he's got like a vertical, like, you know, he's got all the bandages on his head. And Bernard is uh, talking over the airways, I guess, because Chris is uh, too maligned to be giving his broadcast. Bernard starts to talk about the malpractice suit, at which point Maurice walks in and switches off the broadcast. And uh, we get an interesting little, you know, show Bible note here. It turns out Bernard is a Republican, Maurice brings that up for some reason. He says, I can't believe you would do this, Bernard. You're a Republican. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Phil is also there with Maurice trying to figure out what's going on here. Like, can we talk this over? It turns out Maurice is implicated in this in some way as well, because this uh, lawsuit is not just aimed at Phil, but the, you know, the borough of Arrowhead County, which implicates Maurice as well in some way. I guess that, you know, he is a large portion of that somehow. And I think, uh, Maurice just like on the spot fires Chris and Bernard too. I don't, I didn't know Bernard was hired at any point, but, uh, he fires them both. And the scene ends with Bernard being like, I don't know if you should do that. You know, unlawful termination. I'd have to file uh, unlawful termination on you and you've already got enough on your, on your shoulders as it is. Yeah. It's kind of a tricky one because I mean, I don't know you know, I don't know how contract disputes work, but he is talking about something that presumably you are not allowed to talk <laughs> yeah, about true, on right? the air. In my opinion, I feel like I was like, I you think, can't say yeah, that. I, like you're literally suing I them. I think Maurice could like, you know, fire them probably, but, uh, but yeah. Yeah. Like I'm pretty sure that's like well within his rights once you cross that boundary. Uh, but anyway, uh, moving on. We have the deposition where we have the stenographer that is not so warm for Dr. Phil Capra and Maurice and is a little bit warmer toward Chris and Bernard. And Chris is now in a wheelchair. That is some Hayden Keys nonsense right there. You know, that reminds me of uh, Eye of the Beholder. Yeah. I wish that we had more lawyer friends because I want to know if that's illegal. What's illegal? Like showing up to a deposition, like clearly <laughs> to try to win over the audience uh -huh. uh, through theatrics like that, where it's like, where, where it's not, you know, within reasonable boundary. Like, I wonder if someone can actually like, 
you know, slap you on the wrist and be like, all right, the court holds you in contempt for, you know, showing up in a wheelchair, but you don't have to. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, I guess it would be something that's hard to prove. I think there's like something, Joel, Joel has an interesting line in one of the episodes where he's like, I think it's, yeah, it's Eye of the Beholder. He's like, you know, neck and back injuries are like, can be very debilitating, but it's also like kind of hard to show that, you know, what, how much pain is someone feeling, you know? So it would be hard to prove, but yeah, I mean, maybe there is, should be some sort of code of conduct for stuff like that. But then again, how do you, how do you show that Chris, obviously Chris can walk. He doesn't need the wheelchair because he's paralyzed. It turns out he's too dizzy to stand and dizziness is a symptom of what, you know, theoretically could be happening. But Phil says like something in this scene where he's like, you know, the chances that Chris would have permanent damage because um, that's what they get to in the deposition, that the damage could be permanent. Those chances are like enormously low that that could happen. Um, this is the scene where Bernard says it was the morning of January 4th when the incident occurred and Phil used a curette. Bernard is suggesting that Phil's uh, use of this tool was improper or, uh, you know, he, he failed in using it correctly and could have pierced Chris's eardrum. Right, and they theorized that the damage could be permanent, hence why they're bringing the lawsuit in the first place. Uh, I want to say that doctors always have a really good lawyer on retainer because they get sued a lot for mm -hmm. these these types of malpractices or seeming malpractices. I know that one of my friends is an anesthesiologist, and when he was going through medical school, his father gave him advice to be like, all right, if you're going to become an anesthesiologist, then you're going to need a really good lawyer because that's the one that gets sued the most mm. is putting people to sleep. And, yeah. you know, uh, I, I guess like not waking up properly because like the chances of you dying from yeah. anesthesiology is like very, very low. And if that happens, like you definitely need a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But maybe there's like some grogginess and different things that can happen when you come out of. Yeah, it's weirdly one of those professions that gets sued quite a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that they may consider dropping the lawsuit. In the next scene, Bernard is actually advising Chris to drop the lawsuit because it seems that Maurice or the insurance or some combination of the two is going to pay out $20,000. So they should just drop the lawsuit. And Chris goes on a, with a few different lines in this scene. I wrote down one basically saying, as long as I can make his life a living hell, that's all that counts. Talking about Phil. When I heard that, I was like, excuse me, what? Why would Chris <laughs> ever say this? I know Chris has done some really messed up stuff in this season. And I just don't like this being tacked on top of all that. I think it's really cool how it flips in the, in the, you know, the next scene, I think. Um, so I really do appreciate that. I guess like this is just such a it's kind of a, a gut punch to hear Chris say this. Um, maybe, maybe I'll permit it. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's hard for me to grasp. Yeah. I mean, Bernard even calls him out for it. He's like, don't you think this sounds just a tad bit personal? It has a hostile vindictive quality about it. Yeah. The last thing that's, that's the last line of this, of this scene. Bernard says it's, it's as if you're out to destroy this man. And Chris says, really? Like the question mark and, I think it just ends on Chris. Interesting way to end the scene. Right. And that leads us to the final scene with Chris, where he shows up to the Capra's household uh, unexpectedly 
Yeah. And he wants to apologize because he admits that I'm pretty sure he made up all the symptoms. Like, is uh, that? I mean, well, he's walking now completely yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know what he says, but he does say, I, I am dropping the lawsuit um, because he's basically, he's, I think pretty early he says, I'm sorry, it wasn't you, Phil. It was Dr. Fleischman. I don't know that he says, like, I was faking it all, but he's like, I, I just dropped, he just quickly gets oh. the cuts to the chase. I see what you mean. Like the symptoms of dizziness and unable to walk could be caused by Dr. Fleischman leaving and not necessarily from the um, the correct. Well, that's that could be a case of it. I think a lot of it was his um, – something in that first scene, Chris seemed to have been – and this is like sort of a psychological thing where he's uh, in a way sort of lying to himself. Because in that first scene, Chris talks about how impersonal Dr. Fleischman was. But we know that uh, Joel and Chris would hang out. There's so many episodes of their friendship. You know, they have a strong friendship. So we already know that it's strange for Chris to be saying that. If only like when we first see it, we're like, okay, he's just trying to butter up Phil because he likes Phil. And it's true. Phil's a nice guy in that first scene. We really like Phil. But the scene, that first scene does end with Phil saying, I don't know. I always thought Joel was a pretty, a pretty friendly dude. Um, so we know by the end of that scene that there's like, there's a lie in, in some way in what Chris is saying. And I think he's telling himself this lie because he's hasn't been able to process uh, losing Joel. Now, I didn't pull a, a soundbite, but I just wanted to read some of the quotes from the scene that, that Chris says to Phil. He says, of Dr. Fleischman, he says, he was my doctor. He was my physician. He was my friend, you know? And it's, you know, John Corbett gives a very uh, sad performance here. He's kind of like, you know, he's crying. He's tearing up. You can hear his voice cracking. He says, for five years, he saw me through high blood pressure. Uh, what was that? Jaws of Life, I think, was the episode where he had the high blood pressure medicine. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, strep throat, nasal polyps. Um, it was one of the most intimate and personal relationships I ever had in my life. And he left. You know, he split on me. I miss him. You know, I really miss him. And um, yeah, I think it's the performance from Chris. You can hear it in his voice, see it in his eyes that... He's really heartbroken. And I'm happy at least that we see this. You said it before at the beginning of the episode, Charles, about how this is sort of a representation of Joel's, the effect of Joel's departure, not only on Chris, but like the town of Sicily. And this could also be like an allegory for the audience as well, like a stand in for them, for us. I also thought, you know, this could, there might be a practical reason for writing this in to maybe address fan backlash. If, if there was <laughs> fan backlash to this new Phil character, you know, and we can see as there the actually audience, is. There is. Okay, yeah. yeah so that. I got this from the Alaskan Riviera. Great podcast. Yeah. Uh, they also analyze Northern Exposure uh, to the depths that we analyze it. And they brought up an interview with Bullseye where Paul Provenza says this, where it really becomes interesting was Northern Exposure, because Northern Exposure fans were like Trekkies. They were emotionally involved in that show, which I can understand. It was a pretty great, interesting, unusual, smart, and heartfelt show, so I could see people getting emotionally involved with that. The weird thing, though, was that a lot of people in the blogosphere I was getting, like, accused of being the guy that made Rob Morrow leave the show. Mm. And I would just write in and go, no, I had nothing to do with that. He left the show. You want to be mad? Be mad at him. He left the show. I just got a gig. Yeah. I'm just a guy who went for a job and got it. So don't hold it against me. 
So yeah, Palmer Finja apparently was getting a little bit flamed on the internet for replacing Rob Morrow and being the the impetus for him to leave the show. Do you think the same thing would happen today? I think that with today's Twitter and the engagement that we have with people, uh, particularly with celebrities, I think that it would get out pretty quickly, or at least a PR would be better mm-hmm. where it would be established to like, we're not, yeah. we're not going to flame this person. Though that doesn't always happen. Uh, even in today's time, we can still fail tremendously on that. <laughs> uh, one such case is there is a musical called The Great Comet of 1812. And it's got a lot of uh, fancy people that have played the lead role, like Josh Groban. That's a huge mm-hmm. get for Broadway. And when he left, they wanted to get Okaret Onadowan. I apologize if I'm not saying <laughs> his last name right. He had played a minor role in Hamilton. Mm. And the people that were in charge of the Great Comet thought, oh, great, Josh Groban is leaving. We need some star power. Let's see if Hamilton can carry this water. And when they hired this person, we'll just call him Oak. uh, It turns out that he wasn't practicing his lines. He didn't know how to play the accordion that was required of him in that role. He just was not fulfilling up to his contractual obligations. So they had to fire him and bring in Mandy Patinkin to boost ticket sales. Mm -hmm. And, Unfortunately, that wasn't very communicated well. People thought there was ulterior motives for doing so. Mm-hmm. So it raised a whole lot of backlash and a lot of headaches yeah. on the firing of an individual for much, you know, reasonable causes. But it got stretched out over a variety of other reasons that were not pertaining to the cause. So, yeah, it just got nasty very quick. And that was in, shit, what was that, like 2018, 2017? Mm. Around there? So, Yeah. I, I'm not saying that it couldn't happen, but hey, maybe PR drops the ball. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, um, I could see people having that reaction. I can understand because it's what's happening with Chris. I think they're, you know, this is what we're all feeling is uh, misplaced aggression. You know, it's like, I, I get it. But as you said, like, maybe today the engagement's a little more quick and there's, uh, it's not just like, I mean, I guess it, you know, the internet is still a bit of an echo chamber, but hopefully there's better PR. There's more understanding of what's going on so that there wouldn't be a crazy backlash against Paul Provenza um, for, for, for just, you know, accepting a job, like getting hired. Uh, so there might be a practical reason for, for why they wrote this plot line, <laughs> but I do think it is like dramatically, it's imperative that the show you know, addresses this effect, this sudden departure that Joel has on his family, his community of Sicily, because yeah, there was some episodes kind of recently where, what was it? Like Joel gets noticed that his contract is over and he can like go back to New York if he just signs this, you know, paper. And that whole episode, I was like, are they not going to, you know, talk with, you know, Shelly and Hauling at the Brick or is no one curious about what Joel's going to do. Is he going to stay in Sicily? Is he going to go back to New York like uh, uh, Paul Gillum or whatever said uh, he could? And I just felt like they really dropped the ball there. So I'm glad that even though it was a sudden departure and no one really got to talk with Joel, except for maybe Maggie, we see that effect of, of such a stark shift, this sudden departure. Yeah, we can see Chris being broken up entirely with the fact that 
his, his life, his lifestyle, his ritual are all changing whenever someone that's fundamental, a cog of his daily life, goes away. And he has to accept Phil as his new one to replace him. Are you the type of person, Lee, that is also broken up by change in your environment or are you very go with the flow? I think it's natural. I think, uh, I think I could view myself as someone who likes to go with the flow, but I think anyone with any change in their environment is a little shook up, you know? Yeah. I, I'm drastically on that end. Like if, <laughs> yeah. like, uh, it, like if a coworker left in my office, I would actually mm-hmm. get, even if I wasn't even close with them, yeah. I would actually get uh, like distraught. And it wasn't like, oh, it's a feeling of I'm being left behind. It was just the fact that like I had grown accustomed to seeing this individual. I, I knew what it was going to be like. I had determined what my day was going to be. So with that part leaving, it, it always felt uh, devastating. Like recently, my optometrist left. Mm-hmm. And my, like, actually not just my autometrist, my autometrist and my uh, pharmacist both yeah. left. And I was actually sad. I was actually like, yeah. what? Like, oh, oh, like yeah, I, are, I really some, like them. Uh, it's your healthcare provider. You know, that's why uh, you see the same doctor more than once, you know? Yeah. And, uh, all, you know, all the pharmacists did was just, you know, write me a pill and just give it to me. So, <laughs> yeah, I can totally relate to what's happening to Chris and having this devastating impact on him when it's more than just a doctor. It was a friend, like he said. Yeah. Well, as a way for Chris to say sorry, he brought some treats. He's got like a bag of pistachios, some laughing cow cheese, he says, and most of a six pack. Like he might've drank one or two, <laughs> but uh, some beer there. And yeah, we didn't mention it, but that this occurs in that same scene when Michelle is talking about like her, you know, she used to think that journalism was such a romantic idea. They're in bed, Michelle and Phil are. And then all of a sudden, like someone's knocking on the window and it's Chris and Phil is like, oh, oh my God, is he here to kill us or something? You know? <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that's about it for that plot line. We can really now finally dive into the quest. So the episode opens with Maggie being awoken in the middle of the night to the sound of knocking at her door. Joel is calling out to her, O'Connell, come on. Hello, O'Connell, wake up. He says to her, I need a favor. I need a lift to the Aleutians something called Bogoslav Island. He uh, found this crazy like old treasure map that was preserved in ice. It seems to have belonged to La Perouse, a French explorer from 1785. You can uh, look this guy up on Wikipedia, a real thing. And he was like a real explorer. I didn't do a whole lot of research, but uh, just, you know, this is kind of like somewhat based in reality, except, you know, there's this crazy treasure map. And I believe it's the map mentioned something called Kiwaani, uh, which maybe translates to shimmering emerald towers or something like that. And so we've got this crazy treasure hunt, goose chase. I don't know if it's in this scene, but, you know, pretty much throughout this whole episode, Joel's like, I think like I need to do this. This is something that personally I need to do. And he says at the end here to Maggie, he says, won't you come with me? What do you say? And then we get our opening title music. That's right. They go off on their quest to find the jeweled city of the north. And they look through the map. There's a whole lot of clues, riddles, metaphors for them to lead them to the way. And it's revealed that Maggie's not even interested in this. She is more interested in the welfare of Joel than she is of discovering this new land. It's Joel that's fascinated with this discovery. And he's the one that wants to set off toward that. That's 
you know, it's going to pay off dividends at the end of the episode. We're going to see this come to light, you know, mm-hmm. the difference between the two opinions. But for right now, Joe finds a tree that looks like an old woman, leads him <laughs> to a house that's right next door, and he gets attacked by a Japanese man. Yeah, this Japanese man wearing like a sort of like he's got something like a covering his mouth and he's got goggles on, uh, waving around a wooden staff. But Joel just kind of like takes him down like really quick. It's an old man. Um, and, it, you know, he, there's a subtitle or something. I think he says something like that hurt or something, but he's speaking Japanese. Uh, I did want to mention, I found it a little bit interesting that, you know, they're going on this crazy expedition and when we see them get out of the plane or, you know, when they're walking in the snow, Joel's got the map out in front of him and he's like reading off this stuff. It's like sort of in Latin and he knew a little bit of Latin and, you know, I had to take some Latin in med school or something like that. Joel is just now like trying to read the map. Like, did he not study this before? They're just like, let's go fly and we'll figure <laughs> it out. I think that he has like a vague idea. Yeah. Like, he, he obviously read it once. But he's like, we'll figure it out as we as we go along on this uh, on this adventure. Something I didn't think about until just now, but they keep at least early on in the episode, they mention the Stone of Saint Sebastian, which is like something that they're trying to arrive at. And um, you know, I figured that they would just like you know they would talk about it when they get there. But I don't know that they ever really explain what what is Saint Sebastian. So I think we should look it up really quick. Unless you know, maybe there's some importance there. For Saint Sebastian. Uh, I do not. Let's find out. Okay, so Saint Sebastian is popular male saint, especially today among athletes. In medieval times, he was regarded as a saint with the special ability to intercede to protect from plague. Um, he was a, a devotion was great to him, increased uh, greatly increased when the plague was active. So maybe it's a medical thing. Let's see. Why are you looking at this up? Uh, I thought this was. Very funny, because <laughs> all the pictures. Okay, so if you if you find him on Wikipedia, there's a lot of depictions of him throughout the ages in paintings and wallpapers, and in all of them, he's a uh, he's he's half naked, he's jacked, he's <laughs> like conventionally attractive features, and I was like, this is like unusually like very very close on depicting his um his body, and I looked down and there's a tab for LGBT association where it mm-hmm. says. Some religious images depict St. Sebastian as having been adopted by the LGBT community because a combination of his strong shirtless physique, the symbolism of the arrows penetrating his body, and the countenance of rapturous pain have intrigued artists, gay or otherwise, for centuries. And it's, it's, the, it's, the, uh, it's the strong shirtless physique that gets me because that's like literally in all of the, all of the artwork, he is just... Yeah, he's showing off his abs. <laughs> yeah. He's also, there's a lot of art depicting him being shot with multiple arrows. Apparently he was a martyr. They tried to kill him and he was like still alive. And then they uh, clubbed him to death or something. Man, it must have sucked to be a saint. Yeah, I looked up, what is he the patron saint of? Um, patron saint to athletes uh, as well as to archers. And the only thing, other thing I can read is... Um, He was a big uh, saint during the plague because he was going to protect you from the plague. So I guess that's sort of a medical connotation there. Mm, Okay, I I can buy that. Well, anyway, they they find this shack. They find this old Japanese man. Joel beats him up. We get a commercial break. And uh, when we come back, Joel is examining this old man. 
Uh, he seems fine. He just keeps repeating the same thing in Japanese. Maggie comments that it sounds a lot like name, rank, and serial number. Is it possible that he's a Japanese soldier? I mean, he's certainly dressed as one. Joel mentions that apparently the Japanese fought a lot of battles in the Aleutians, but that was over 50 years ago. Is it possible that he could be out here and not even know that the war is over? Uh, there is like, you know, some real world stories that are similar to this. If you go to Wikipedia again, there's an entry for Japanese holdout. I think that was something that had happened. Um, probably largely, you know, what do you call that? Like kind of made more into a myth. Like, mm -hmm. you know, maybe it's exaggerated a little bit, but I think, I, I can't remember, but I don't think there was anyone who was ever out there for 50 years, but like maybe. I like, think there actually is. Really? Wow. Yeah. There's like one person, like one, one fella. <laughs> let me, let me see. Well, there's one in 1980. It says it's not confirmed, but that would mean about, you know, 40 or so years, just plus or minus. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's one where it's like, ah, uh, 30 years. Yeah. So mm -hmm. Japanese Lieutenant Hiro Anato, and he was stationed in the Philippines and he got lost in the jungle and he thought that there was a war going on for nearly 30 years. My gosh. Yeah. They made a movie crazy. on him. I was going to say, I think there's a movie. What's the movie called? I think there's a movie like this. Uh, it is called on uh, Onoda 10,000 Nights in the Jungle. Mm. Werner Herzog is going to publish a novel on that. Oh, interesting. That sounds very cool. Oh, but anyway, in this episode, he's uh, making some sushi as Maggie and Joel are just like, what's going on here? Like, is this really a guy from World War II? Um, it turns out they find like a book on the bookshelf, The Art of Japanese Management by Richard Pascal. That book was published in 1981. And also it's in English. Like, this is not adding up. Like, he must know, like, what about current world events. And, uh, you know, the veil is lifted. Uh, he he starts to speak English because it's like, of course, he he knows English. But... He just decided that he really loved his time in the war that he spent in the Aleutians and he always wanted to come back here after he retired. So he's just this old, you know, retired Japanese soldier out in the, what you know, Aleutians, I guess you would call it. Right. And he has a very interesting story on why he left. It was because at this particular point in history, in the 1990s, Japan was going through something that's called the Lost Decade. And, you know, it's actually probably more correct to call it the Lost Decades because it's mm. kind of still happening. But it's an economic crisis that happened in Japan's economy where after World War II, it rose astronomically. It was a behemoth to behold. Uh, everyone thought Japan was going to take over the world. I mean, you know, if you were growing up in the 60s and 70s and 80s, you would get stuff that said like made in Japan and that would raise the price of an item by double or triple the price. People were making songs about Japan, like Mr. Roboto. People <laughs> thought it was going to be like this cultural powerhouse. And then once it hit like the end of the 1980s, that was its peak. And it quickly burst in its bubble because... It crashed, the stock market got decimated, and a debt crisis began, which halted economic growth for the entire 1990s. It kind of got better in the 2000s, but it never really recovered. Mm -hmm. um, from 2011 to 2019, Japan's GDP grew an average of just under 1% for a year. Wow. And it didn't get better, you know, in 2019 with the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people actually call it, you know, their lost decades. Uh, it's kind of going bad for Japan. And then when you couple that with their low birth rates, 
it, it paints a very dire picture for that country. So this man at this time saw that his country was going through a recession. So he just wanted to go back and return to a better earlier time. Mm. And I think it's very interesting that they say that like the war never ended with him because it kind of gives out the feeling like many other things in this episode that he doesn't want to leave this place. Yeah. No, that's a great, that's a really great uh, way to tie it into just the series here. It's like, we don't want to leave Joel behind. Uh, You know, we want to stay in our shack out here dressed as a Japanese soldier, you know? Um, But he, he uses some interesting language at the end of this scene, something that Maggie picks up on. He says to Joel and to Maggie, I tell you, I fought a lot of dragons in my day, demanding father-in-law, gum surgery, but nothing like this inflated real estate market. That's the reason, again, he's a refugee after the Japanese recession here. And he says, dragon. I said dragon. You know the ironic thing? My first name, Ryu, it means dragon, which later, whenever, after Joel and Maggie leave, Maggie will once again bring up the Holy Grail. She, she was talking about that a little bit earlier. And she's saying to Joel, symbolically, it's kind of like you, you slayed the dragon. In the next scene, Joel and Maggie are still on their way to find the jeweled city of the north. And they spy a spa, of all things, <laughs> just couched in the mountains right there. Yeah, a lodge deep in the distance. Like, what is that doing there? First a shack, now a kind of a huge resort uh, out there. They decide to go check it out. Yeah, and the resort is kind of play on the same thing as this Japanese soldier where he's saying that there is a place that you would like to go to that you just don't want to leave from. Mm-hmm. And for Joel and Maggie, the spa offers all of these amenities. They offer all of these pleasantries that they could get used to it. But Maggie points out to Joel that they can't be here forever. They have to go back on their quest. And Lee, you might be able to help me on this uh, because I did not do my research on Wikipedia fast <laughs> enough. I'm pretty sure in the Odyssey, doesn't Odysseus get into a similar situation where he finds a place where he's like, oh, this is really awesome. I'm going to be here. And he's there for too long because it's too comfortable. Definitely. Yeah. This made me think of the Odyssey more. Uh, Maggie brings up sirens. And I guess that definitely still applies. Like this is the siren song drawing you in. But in the Odyssey, it's, I believe it's called the Lotus Eaters. It's basically like this island or something, some place that Odysseus gets to and everyone's just doing opium. And so they're kind of lost. Uh, Maggie even kind of hints at that. She says, uh, of course it's fun. It's fun because we're wallowing around in this herbal scented bliss, like you're smoking mm, opium this catch. whole time. Um, yeah, that's, I also just wanted to quickly talk about the set. I'm not sure where they shot this, but it's got a swimming pool indoors. Maggie and Joel are relaxing on those like, chairs that you would have, you know, out by the pool, like those laying chairs, they got robes on. I couldn't fully read the, there's like a little embroidery on the robe. It said like Bon Sani or Bon Sanu or Bon Sanis or something. Not really sure what that means. Bon, I know means good. Um, They have little pineapple drinks with tiny umbrellas. But yeah, yeah, to answer your question, this was definitely like sort of a lotus eater scene for me, I thought that was pretty cool to harken back to this quest, to this odyssey, search for the Holy Grail. I guess in are sirens in Arthurian legends or is this something I, else? Maybe. Yes. <laughs> I'm guessing so. Like Maggie brings it up. So she's trying to make a connection to the whole 
holy grail quest of it all. Mm. Yeah. Uh, oh, and one last little thing that I thought could be tied into this, and it was something that was published very recently in The Economist, where it says, Japan is nostalgic for a past that was in part worse than its present. Uh, and what the article talks about is that Japan's youth are very nostalgic for the aesthetics of the Showa period, which is the very long ago, 1970s, Japan's dynamic past. That's mm -hmm. when they were riding strong. This is at their pinnacle of their cultural impact. And if you can picture it now, it was bright colors and exuberant designs. There was glitzy chandeliers and plush velvet seats. Uh, a lot of Western influence on their music and fashion. It was a whole different era than that old school 1940s World War II. It was a transformation into a, like a disco-like city pop atmosphere. It, it was a it was a vibe, man. They they call it city pop. <laughs> yeah, and it was it's just like that is stuck in its own little time capsule. <laughs> and Japan's youth are totally into that now. They're like, oh, this is like very cheek. This mm. is what I want. Now that doesn't mean that they want to go back into that. Uh, thinking because that was like extremely conservative thinking. Um, <laughs> Japan is notoriously a very conservative country. And even back then that was like way more like turn up the dial. <laughs> but I thought it was very interesting that like there is still a yearning for the past that they don't want to let go of. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I didn't really uh, clock, but I think it's definitely kind of laced throughout this episode is like wanting to stay. I mean, obviously yeah, I mean, it's the ending there where Joel decides to leave and Maggie decides to stay. Spoiler alert, like wanting Joel to stay, but realizing that he's got to go. Well, let's continue on our quest here. They do escape the lodge here, the uh, spa, and uh, Maggie starts talking again about the, the quest. It's like, you know, we got dragons, we got sirens. Uh, sushi. Maybe it was Joel who st who starts to con who who's who's saying this, and it's like you know maybe you're right about this quest thing. I guess sushi being like the boon or like the treasure that he gets or something. I'm not really sure where that fits into the Grail here, but uh, they I guess they they got. I, I don't think it's depicted in the episode, but they say that they got some sushi from the Japanese guy. There is a deleted scene where he says goodbye to them, and he's like, "Don't tell anybody I'm out here. You know, I just like being here alone." Uh, here's some sushi that you can take. Thanks for visiting. So that that was, you know, part of something there. Um, but this leads into a really interesting monologue, I think, from Joel in this episode, where they're talking about, like, you know, we flew a real plane here. We're like, we're actually going, this is real life that we're doing this quest, but doesn't it feel a little bit like fantasy? Like a sort of like nothing here is real or what's the real reality? So let me play this clip from uh, Joel, this monologue in his seat. You know, when I was a kid, I used to, I remember thinking that, that, that nothing was real. I just, I remember it like all felt like a, a movie set, you know, and, and if you turn your head fast enough, you, you catch God or, or, or something changing the scenery. Yeah, I know what you mean. I still have that feeling. It's like a, a sense that there's this whole other reality, you know? That this is real reality, but we can't see it. I guess that's why I became a doctor when, when I think about it. That's why I went to medical school, you know, to get some answers. Maybe in the blood, in the bones, heart. Didn't happen though. <laughs> Still don't know what reality is. 
So then how do we know what's possible and what isn't? And my whole life has been leading to this point. Maybe I'll get my chance to look behind the curtain. Or we will. So there's a lot of ways to look at that monologue and think about what's happening. I guess on the surface, Joel is talking about how all his life he was trying to figure out like what what was reality really. You know, I became a doctor to try to understand the heart, you know, to try to understand the mind. Um, but, you know, I'm still trying to find that answer here. Maybe that's why I'm here. But also there's the crazy sort of like very Twin Peaksy, like pulling back the curtain, uh, looking on, you know, Joel's realizing now that I'm actually in a TV show, like I'm a character on a TV show. <laughs> uh, there's also another way that you could say, like, is this a way of like Joel or Rob Morrow kind of talking about like leaving TV to go to movies? Uh, there's a very much going on that you could read into this. Right. Okay. Okay. First of all, this is like the top, at least top three speeches they've ever written for Northern Exposure. Yeah. It's so good. <laughs> when I heard that speech, I rewinded the episode and I listened to it two more times. Spit take, you're like, what? Oh my yeah, God. It's so good. It's one of those things where you listen to it and you're like, holy crap, Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider have still got some teeth on them because that mm -hmm. is so good. That dialogue that you just want to sink your teeth into. Mm -hmm. I was so impressed by that. And to me, uh, when, when I was a kid, uh, I remember being in, gosh, I must have been in like second or third grade. I remember they showed us like the globe of the world. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was that old school circular globe that was hanging on the, um, you know, the little, the golden half arch mm -hmm. that you would spin the globe on. And I remember looking at that and thinking, the world is so small. It can fit on this globe. And like, I didn't understand that. Like, obviously it's just, you know, it's, a scale, like it's, yeah. it's a scale. I didn't understand that. But like to a child, I thought that it was such a shame. It was such a mind blowing experience to see that like the world could be encapsulated into just this sphere right here to even depict it. Cause I thought it was so grand. And I, I feel very similar to Joel where he was saying that, you know, all of my life, it felt like it feels like this is it. And surely this can't just be it. Surely there has to be something more to mm -hmm. what I'm seeing right here. Because this just feels like a movie set. If I turn my head around, I should be able to see the real world. Something that's more than this, what's being shown in the scenery or on this globe. And I think that really leads into the larger thing of this episode where he's saying that there's so much more to this world than Sicily, Alaska. Mm, yeah. I also think this scene kind of opens up a lot for this episode, especially like the way this episode ends. Like they give you a visual depiction of what happens in the end. But because of this scene, because of all this sort of fantasy elements of the quest and like, is this real life? Is this a fantasy? You can also now take that ending and be like, okay, maybe like, maybe that didn't actually happen verbatim from what we saw. Like maybe this is a sort of allegory for what Joel is doing. Like we can kind of make our own ending up for Joel. Uh, for the record, I do also think it's cool. I, I believe that Joel's back in New York. I mean, I think anyone, you can, <laughs> you can say he's in Mananash. You could, I think those are all really great endings. Uh, I, I like him going back to New York, but, uh, but man, I mean, I don't know if they ever reboot it, you know, that would, that would be the answer. 
but I guess we'll see. <laughs> uh, to, to talk a little bit more about this scene, uh, yeah, just to celebrate Diane Frolov and Andrew Snyder, it is a really great monologue here. They kind of pulled off the Saint Elsewhere ending without it being, you know, so offensive. Like famously, the Joshua Brand, John Falsey, I, I haven't watched all of the series. I watched, you know, the first season, but Saint Elsewhere, their, you know, kind of big first hit show. It ends with like, uh, you know, actually this whole drama, this whole TV series was actually just like in the mind of a, I want to, I could be misremembering. I want to say it was like in the mind of a child with autism or something. And he's like holding this snow globe and you can see inside the snow globe is like a hot, maybe Saint, the hospital St. Elsewhere is there or something. Do you know about the the ending to St. Elsewhere? I don't, I, I don't, I don't like that. I don't like <laughs> yeah, the sounds of this. <laughs> it was really, it really like, I think even fans of the show were like, huh, what? And in a way, Diane Frolov and Andrew Snyder are also kind of saying like, you know, is this actually all real or are we all, you know, in the minds of, we're all just in a TV show at the end. I, I would like to give it a generous reading and take it at its face value yeah. that like, Joel honestly did have this thought when he was a child, which yeah. is a very like I mean, I just related it. Like I can totally see him having this as this, a kid. Uh, as a kid, yeah. I had to say I thought like either like everyone was robots or like maybe there's a chance like if I turn around real quick, I can see someone like with their script or something, like, you know, like it was a TV show or something mm -hmm. like that. Right, right. Uh, but no, I, I agree. Like, you know, this scene opens up a lot of interpretation for someone to be like, it could have all been a dream, you know? But it also, like, it's it's not explicitly saying that, and it makes sense. It's, as you're saying, very relatable to anyone to hear what Joel's saying and be like, yeah, I mean, I felt that too. Like, what what is real? And maybe that's why we wake up every day. That's why we live life is to figure out, to experience reality. It's something that reality is maybe not a constant too. Like maybe our everyday lives go in between reality and some fantasy. Like, you know, that's part of our existing, I guess. I don't know. Great scene, great monologue. I'm sure we'll have a lot to say about it throughout the series, but uh, we're going to go to the next scene, which is a crossfade into like a time passing. Maggie and Joel have come upon a bridge, but it's fenced off. It's locked. And they get close to the bridge and this trapper all of a sudden walks up to them really quick. And he was like, oh, thank God you're here. I was wondering how I'd get across. Like, go ahead and unlock it. Don't you have the key? Uh, no, maybe there's a gatekeeper around. So they go bang on this little, I guess, gatehouse that's right there. And it opens up to reveal Adam, except it's not Adam. It's someone named Gustav. Uh, but, you know, quickly revealed, I think, I think Gustav is just the cover name. It seems that Adam is laying low from the CIA and that's why he's out here all the way in the Aleutians at this gatehouse uh, pretending to be someone named Gustav. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that this episode lends itself to heavy-handed metaphors because it itself is a heavy-handed metaphor of the quest, mm -hmm. which is, you know, the I think Joel even spells it out. It's got the paradigms of the hero's journey, all of the things that fit it out. So crossing a bridge, answering a riddle about love, that is... You know, it's there. You can't miss it. Mm -hmm. But it plays well into its favor. And even more to that, I really like that Adam takes on a new identity, as if to say that he himself is changing, like the townsfolks are changing. So, so must Joel himself. Yeah. And yeah, Adam slash Gustav wants him to answer a riddle. That's right. The riddle he poses is 
how do you keep the one you love? And the trapper answers first. Uh, he says, a dozen roses and a box of chocolates. And, you know, fails the test. Get out of here, Adam says. Like, go on, skedaddle. And Joel and Maggie, still standing there, uh, Gustav slash Adam, asks them the same question. Joel maybe takes a brief little moment, but he answers, you don't. You don't keep the one you love. Love is selfless and non-possessive. If you truly love somebody, then you have no desire to possess them. You don't keep them. And there's some like back and forth cuts to like Adam watching Joel as he's saying this. And Joel's like, well, you know, did I get it right? And Gustav rattles some keys here, opens the gate. And before they cross, he he pulls Joel aside and he says, you know, I, I want to warn you that your search to find something out there, whatever's out there, it's not going to be as easy as you think. And I've seen some people online say like this is referencing Rob Morrow leaving TV for film, but I'm wondering, are there any other implications? Like what, what could that mean? I mean, it's just like, it's hard, it's hard to, uh, it's not an easy task, I guess, to. Uh, yeah, I, I'm more of a generous watcher. I, I don't want to believe that they were trying to pack in some external wisdom for Rob Morrow. I wanted to say they want to pack in wisdom for Joel Fleischman. They're trying to say that the enlightenment that you're seeking won't just happen because you just go to this location. Uh, it, yeah. it comes from like a lot of soul searching from within. Sure, the environment is conducive for your discovery, but you're still going to have to work for it. I also say that like, I don't know why, but like I'm really entranced with the setting of the bridge. Mm -hmm. The way that the gate is set up, it's very tall, very narrow. I don't know why. It reminds me of Jurassic Park 3. Do you remember <laughs> that scene with like the pterodactyls that like come out and like almost get them? They have like uh, a gate very similar to this. I don't remember, but I mean, yeah, I could see Jurassic Park in like gates and stuff. <laughs> I, can, yeah. I can see that. <laughs> I don't know why I kept thinking yeah. about it, but I was thinking, I was like, I wish I could be there right now because I bet that's such a, you know, such a distinct feeling. You intrinsically just want to open the gate and walk across that bridge. Yeah. No, yeah, it's a great little setting. And it's really fun and funny that, uh, that Adam is here as like the riddle of the Sphinx in a way. Uh, by the way, yeah. Do you think that's a good, uh, that's a good riddle, good answer? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I immediately came up with that one too. I was like, um, uh, if you love something, set it free. Yeah, set it free. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those where it's like, you can't answer it because they're, you know, but knowing that the answer is that it's not possible, you know, that's kind of the answer. Interesting thing I noted at the end of the scene, it's just a very small little, I'm not sure what's going on here, but when Joel leaves, uh, Adam hands him the lock, I guess to be like, you know, lock it on your way out. But um, Joel just, you know, Joel and Maggie just walk on the bridge. They don't close the gate or anything behind mm -hmm. him. So there's a, I don't know, it's just an action. Like, you know, the actor decided to hand uh, Rob Morrow the lock or the director was like, okay, and then th you say this and then you hand him the lock. But I don't know. They just, they, maybe they were planning to cut out before then, but Joel just keeps walking with the lock. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was really curious about that too. Maybe it's Adam's parting gift for him. Just this lock. Yeah, could have some significance, but... Uh, we won't, we won't dally there. Let's go further to the next scene. So Joel and Maggie have set up a tent, I guess, to rest for the night. And uh, Joel is still here interpreting the map. Like, you know, I still, I find it strange that he, like, they decided to go on this quest with no idea of what the map was saying. They just would figure it out as they go. But, you know, that's what's happening in this episode. Maggie is making a stew. 
Joel is worried that their mission is going to be all for naught. Like he can't figure out how to interpret the map at this point. They've come this far and they still don't know the interpretation. But we learn that Maggie is just enjoying herself, actually. She doesn't care if they find it or not. She's just having a great time going on a quest here with Joel. And the map, the thing that's um, that's bumping Joel here, this this uh, translation is, uh, I think, crescentis or something, a word on the map, crescentis, uh, something about crescentis growing or increasing, he says. He doesn't know what that means. To me, I just thought that meant like the moon, right? I mean, crescent? Yeah, that's what I thought too. But it turns out to be maybe not that, but I mean, maybe it is. Maybe they're interpreting it wrong and they still find the way. I don't know. But um, but yeah, this is, uh, this is a, a really great scene with uh, Maggie, has a wonderful monologue here because as I mentioned, Joel's distraught. He's, uh, it feels like he's, he's a failure in this point. Like their mission's going to fall apart and Maggie has no regrets and is actually enjoying herself. And Joel for a moment forgets the map and thinks about Maggie and he sees her and he says, we've been through a lot together, haven't we? Maggie says something like, you mean like this, this whole quest or like the last five years? And then we get this monologue. I'll play a soundbite. You ever wonder why we met? What do you mean? I used to think of all the billions of people in the world. And out of all those people, how was I going to meet the right ones? You know, like the right ones to be my friends and they want to be my husband. <laughs> and now I just believe you meet the people you're supposed to meet. It's another feather in the cap for Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider right there. Great piece of dialogue right there. I just think that you're supposed to meet the people you're supposed to meet. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's like, you know, this was all kind of like faded, but also sort of like this is, uh, despite whether I think like this is where I want to go with my life, this is what's happening now in my life currently. Like, you know, basically like, I don't know if like, Maggie knows this at this point, but it must be looming, especially now that Joel is no longer contractually obligated to stay in Alaska and that her and Joel's relationship didn't work out. You know, I mean, they, they're having a great time now, but it's not in the cards for them. Yeah. Just kind of recognizing that it's not necessarily a failed relationship or failure or anything like this is the person you're supposed to, to meet. Yeah, exactly. It's really like, you know, instead of trying to force the puzzle pieces to fit together, it either fits or it doesn't, or they come and they go. So these people that come into Maggie's lives, you just think of them as right then and there. And and then when they leave, they leave when they have to. So they leave out the door as quickly as they came knocking in. Yeah, you don't have to worry about finding that right person. You don't have to be constantly searching for like, oh, it's this definitive thing. It's this definitive person that I need to look for. Mm -hmm. That person will just appear. Yeah. It's, you know, being more present, being more aware of like who you're with now. You meet the people you're supposed to meet, as Maggie said. It's just like, you know, it sounds great. It's great writing. The performance is great. She's very puffy eyed and teary, kind of maybe sniffly holding back tears. Well, that's the end of the scene. And when we return to them, Maggie wakes up in the middle of the night. They're still in the tent. And uh, she she wakes Joel up. She says, what was the word? The word that you were struggling with, crescentis. She says, I just had the most vivid dream. 
in the dream, I was in Paris with this guy that I used to be a student with at the Sorbonne, Jean-Marc. We were at this patisserie in the 9th arrondissement, and we were buying all this stuff for breakfast and croissant, you know, crescentis croissant. Do you know, couldn't that, couldn't that be the word you're searching for? It sounds a little silly, but it's like, you know, just draw a crescent on the map, draw a croissant. And they, they draw the shape. Uh, Maggie sort of corrects it a little bit. It's like, no, it should be more curved like this. And the lines of the croissant drawing kind of like interact with something on the map. Like it crosses another line on the map and it, I'm guessing it like draws an X because they say X marks the spot. Uh, I also just wanted to quickly say the whole, that whole history of Maggie studying at the Sorbonne that is mentioned previously in the series. I had to go back to try to figure out what episode and I believe it's in the body in question, which is when they find this like frozen French soldier or something. So maybe that is brought up her, her studying in France is, uh, referenced in that episode. And then again, apparently in the season four episode revelations, also they mentioned the Sarbonne, hmm. maybe that Maggie study there. I can't remember if it's any other episodes. I just did a quick search, but did you remember that, that Maggie had uh, a semester no. in Paris? None of them. Not. I totally yeah. forgot about that. Does the relevance of a dream play into the Odyssey or any other Hmm. Uh, quest-like stories, um, Roundtable, for instance? I would assume it does. I, I can't, um, can't think of the exact reference, but I would assume there's definitely some dreams in the Odyssey or the like Arthurian legends. Yeah. All right, that takes us to the climactic scene where Maggie and Joel are going through the woods. They're taking a certain number of paces because supposedly once you reach 40 paces, that's where you're going to find the... The Atlantis. Yeah. <laughs> the, the the jeweled city of the north. El Dorado. El yeah. Dorado, yeah. <laughs> and Maggie makes a comment saying like, wait, maybe we messed up because sizes were different. People took different steps back then because they don't see anything. They're in the middle of the woods. But then Joel spots out that, wait, no, there's like a window that's appearing. Yeah, there's something out there. They're in this dark, icy, foggy forest which I'm pretty sure is, is I mean, it's got to be a set because they have this really interesting uh, visual effect that happens here where Joel looks out into the dark and a light begins to turn on and we see sort of skyscrapers at night, sort of like a city skyline. And Joel says it's the jeweled city, but it's not, you know, this like Alaskan uh, Atlantis or anything. It's actually like a depiction of New York City. You can see the Chrysler building, he points out, the Empire State Building, the World Trade Towers. He says, oh my God, it's Manhattan. And it actually, I think this is a really good effect. I think it looks really cool. It's probably like a rear projection or something where they have this huge screen. You know, they have, they, they built a set with all these trees and snow and then it falls off into darkness and there's this screen that they're projecting, you know, the image of uh, New York City skyline. It, it looks yeah. awesome. I think it works out very well, even in today's time. I was like, this is, yeah, you can still do this today. I feel like it would still be like kind right. of fun. Yeah, I wonder if they would do like green screen or like the, uh, you know, what is like the Mandalorian TV walls would even be a way to do it. Oh, but, yeah. But rear projection also has its own little magic too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, you know, that's kind of the charm of it, where it's not like 100% authentic. 
because you can reasonably guess that like there's something like a little bit off, but uh, it's Joel's own vision. It's him seeing into this thing. There's no mm-hmm. no problem if it's a little bit off, and yeah, he's seeing Manhattan. He's seeing that this is the place that he he's destined to go to. Yeah, and Maggie says, "Is is that the old Pan Am building?" So it's not like it's not like New York is actually there. It's some you know depiction of New York, perhaps, or maybe. Uh, New York is actually there. Maybe it is a fantasy New York. I don't know. Maybe Maggie's just not seeing it correctly, but she says it's the old Pan Am building. Um, unless I'm guessing, I'm wondering, actually, I don't know anything about the old Pan Am building is like, is that building still standing? It's just called something else. So they call it the old Pan Am building or was it like torn down and it shouldn't exist anymore? Uh, so, cause maybe she's just calling it the old Pan Am building when it's actually, it's got a new name now. She just didn't remember what it was called. But I'm I'm reading it as if she's seeing like a depiction of the past or something. Okay, so looking at it from Wikipedia, it was originally opened as the Pan Am Building mm-hmm. in 1963. And then further down the road, it was put on the market in 1980. So it sold for about $200 million, according to Business Week. It was a very complex sell. Uh, there was nine bidders submitted. Blah, 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 blah. Let's not get into that. That's not <laughs> as interesting. Uh, it was sold in 1980 to MetLife for $400 million, double the mm. price of what Business Week predicted it to be. So, yeah, around this time, it would be called the MetLife Building. Interesting. Yeah, so maybe she's just saying, like, that used to be the Pan Am Building. I don't know what it's called now. Uh, so yeah, this could actually be really New York in Alaska here. Yeah, there's oh. a lot of ways to. Oh, go ahead. Really quickly, uh, by 1991, so even more current to their time, okay. the MetLife themselves were like, "Hey, don't call us MetLife. Call us 200 Park Avenue." Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you know, Maggie's like kind of seeing it, and then Joel takes her to another vantage point, and this is even more clear. Like before, we were sort of getting like just lights. Now we're getting color, and we're getting like closer view of these skyscrapers and um the music is really interesting it's like these sort of like ethereal notes um sort of chords and things very like slow long tones with a sort of native pan flute sound that i think very effectively transforms into a clarinet squeal like it's kind of hard to tell when the pan flute ends and the clarinet begins but then it's clear as New York becomes more visible, like it's more of that jazz clarinet, that Jewish heritage klezmer uh, sort of Joel music that we get. It's common. We hear that music with Joel. Yeah, really well done. I was like, ah, there we go. <laughs> I didn't think it was coming, but it came in at the last moment. It's a beautiful scene and it sets the stage for the tender goodbye between Maggie and Joel because Joel says, you know, I don't know what this is all about, but let's go find out. And Maggie says, no, I, you know, I, I can't. I've been wondering about this for the five years that we've been together. What would happen when you asked me to leave with you? Mm-hmm. And now I know what the answer is. I can't. This is my place right here, Sicily, Alaska, and your place is back home. It's Manhattan, the place that you've been pining for constantly ever since you got here. Honestly, yeah. I mean, like, I think with my heart, I don't want to see them separated. But I guess logically, it really does make a lot of sense. I mean, Maggie rebuilt herself. Like, she left Gross Point, and this is her identity, is in Sicily. She says earlier in this episode, she, I love waking up and flying. I get to see the sunrise, you know. She's the freaking mayor of uh, Sicily now. <laughs> 
And it is true, Joel has been wanting to get back to New York. And, you know, there's a million ways you could you could uh, interpret this ending. Maybe Joel is is still in Alaska. You know, New York is just a state of mind, which we'll get to in the next scene. But it does make sense that logically that Joel would go back to New York. You know, he's got a whole future ahead of him there. There's also, you know, I, I could totally imagine Joel staying in Sicily too. I wish that were an angle that could have been explored a little more. Kind of gets derailed a little bit by him going to Mananash. You know, I wish he had wish he had spent more time off the hook of his contract, just being like, maybe I'll, let me think about it. Maybe I'll stay in Sicily. I don't know. Like maybe I'll take a year here before I go back to New York because he was supposed to stay another year anyway. That would be a right. that would be a great seventh season is like knowing that he has one year left and he technically doesn't need to stay here anymore. Like he might just leave at any point. Sorry, getting ahead of myself. Just to talk more about the context in the scene, it is very beautiful where they stand together, they kiss. Joel says, you know, I got to do this. And the their parting words, Maggie says to him, Fleischman, everything, all I never said. He says to her, me too. And then he walks off dramatically into the fog. And there's actually a visual effect here too. It's not just that he like walks into the darkness. He literally like uh, dissolves. He fades. He fades out. He disappears <laughs> into the backdrop. Uh, he goes force ghost, I guess. Now, I don't know. He's just like, <laughs> he's gone. Yeah, that is his second to last scene right there. I want to talk about it more, about like the entirety of it. Okay. Uh, once we talk about this final scene, because I think it's going to be that much more powerful. But Joel walks off into the distance. We cut into the next morning where Maggie pulls up in her truck, business as usual, to go get her mail at Ruth Ann's store. And she's looking through it probably standard bills. She gets a postcard that says Staten Island Ferry, New York. And she flips mm. it over and it says, New York is a state of mind. Love, Joel. Yeah, all capital letters. New York is a state of mind. Love, Joel. And then um, it's addressed to Maggie O'Connell, P.O. Box 86, Sicily, Alaska, 99729. Just in case you were trying to, we talked about this a couple times on the podcast, like there's a really great, someone's blog or website where they were trying to, as close as they could, pinpoint the location of Sicily. Of course, it's not real, but according to all the geographical references in all of the episodes, they listed a bunch of different examples. And I guess this must have been part of it, like the area code could be where, you know, where we're looking for Sicily. Mm -hmm. And then we do the fadeaway and we get a close up of Joel. Camera kind of revolves a little bit to reveal his surroundings. And he walks off to the railing and it reveals that he's on the ferry. Mm -hmm. It's on the boat. He's on a river. Come on, river, metaphor, life goes on. Yeah. Huckleberry Finn, <laughs> let's do this. <laughs> let's do this. Very good. Yeah, he's clean shaven. We still got the long hair, but he's clean shaven. It's a foggy morning and you got the New York City skyline there in the, in the morning time. The music is really cool. It's um, Forever Nightshade Mary by Latin Playboys. Now on the DVD, they changed this song to a song called Hold On by Dodo Green. And I just want to say it's actually not that bad. It's a pretty good choice. However, the Latin Playboy song is really, really good, I think. And I would totally understand if someone gets really upset to hear the other song <laughs> in this scene because, you know, it's just a big, it's an important moment. And, you know, they 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 couldn't afford it or they didn't want to afford the, the rights. So, unfortunately, it was replaced. Mm -hmm. 
that's the end of the episode. But like you were saying, maybe we should talk a little bit about what just happened. You know, like what does yeah. New York as a state of mind? What does that mean to you? Uh, I mean, it's a very cheeky way of saying that, like, whenever he was out there with Maggie, he wasn't, like, literally seeing New York City. Like, it wasn't like the city literally moved hundreds of miles to the (laughs) west. He's saying that it's all in his mind. It's that, like, you know, where you are mentally is so much more important than where you are physically. Mm, Boom. Yeah, I think you hit it in the bullseye. I think there's a lot of ways you can interpret that as well. You know, there's there's an interpretation that it's like he's not actually in New York. This is like in his head. Mm-hmm. He's reached this enlightened state and he's maybe he's still in the backwoods. But I really loved the way you just put it there. That's that's kind of what I subscribe to. It's like uh, your your state of mind is where you are. You know, it's like and of course, it's the people around you, too, and those connections that you make that create our reality as well. It's not just that we're in this TV show and everyone else is behind the curtains. They're just actors that are hired to play the role of my mom or the Mm -hmm. role of like Maggie O'Connell. There is a reality shared between our friends and our community, uh, our enemies, you know, every, everybody in our life. And yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's a very heady ending, but I really loved it. I'm glad they went I'm glad they went for something like this with with the departure of Joel. Right, right. I agree. I think it's such a great send-off for him. And as a whole, like, we talked about it frequently on this podcast, how we thought that, like, uh, you know, the, the writing has kind of been off the wall. It hasn't been very consistent. We don't like that Joel is leaving and everything. The silver lining, in my opinion, or at least a, a positive way to interpret this entire situation is that... Northern Exposure is essentially the town of Sicily, and the town itself is composed of the individuals that live in it, and it's not always the same individuals. People go in and people go out. Joel Fleischman goes into Sicily, Alaska, and he leaves Sicily, Alaska, and that's very that's very thematical of the town itself because now they introduce a new person. Phil Capra, he's going to also learn about the magic of Sicily, Alaska. And when he leaves, it's going to be another doctor and then another doctor. And the one consistent thing, though, is that it's this town. So by painting Joel as this individual doesn't, like, stay in Sicily forever, he goes in and out, it makes Sicily the main character and not him. Yeah, I mean, and that's what they're, that's what they're recognizing, or at least if they... It's not that. It's like, that's what they're stuck with. The writers of the show, they're like, well, turns out that the show can't be about Joel anymore because he's not here. Mm-hmm. But like when we look at it, I think there's definitely a way for you to look at the show and say, the show is about Sicily. It's not just about Joel. And I think it, you know, as I said before, I said this on the Patreon, I'll always view Joel as the protagonist. But the show does become more about the town after the first and the second season, it really branches out and we see a lot of the different characters. And then we see, you know, the anthropomorphism of the town, I guess you could call it. Like, you know, the midnight sun, you know, spring break, you know, all the crazy, the the cohos, you know, the different environmental factors that, uh, you know, occupy an entire episode, you know, of of the show. Um, So yeah, it really is true that that this is kind of the the central central idea of the show is Sicily. I do want to talk about there is a little moment that 
happens after Joel walks off into the fog and he disappears. Marilyn is at home. We cut to her like knitting something. She stops knitting and she looks up kind of to the heavens and she says goodbye. Like, you know, like she she feels Joel's presence leaving. Mm-hmm. And uh, very that's like a very kind of Twin Peaks weird kind of moment, I think, to me. There's this fade to white. Uh, and I wanted to note down, it was just like such kind of a crazy transition from that fade to white to Maggie driving to Ruthann's store to go pick up the mail and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, also a very, you know, white scene with the snow and stuff. So it fades through to that. On the Blu-ray, um, the fade to white actually dips back into black and then fades up. So it goes from white oh. to a quick black and then fade up. On the DVD, it does not dip. It goes straight through to like white to the next thing. And, you know, obviously the Blu-ray is taken from the original film, but I feel like with visual processes of like the effects and stuff, even on the Blu-ray, it reverts back to like the video quality because they didn't, I'm assuming they didn't finish any of those visual effects on film. They just did it on video because that's how it's going to be broadcast. No reason to go back and print it on film just to, you know, convert it back to broadcast standards. So, you know, I'm definitely looking into this way too much, but I noticed that there was a difference. I looked at both because I thought it was such an interesting transition. I want to believe that the DVD is probably more true to broadcast with that um, that fade to white than the Blu-ray would be. Yeah, that's a artistically a way better choice. Yeah. Like stylistically <laughs> and artistically. Artistically because, you know, it's white to white and it goes from like a very, like you mentioned, strange otherworldly white to a mundane white of the snow that surrounds you that's a little bit dirty, a little bit brown from uh, mm. the morning sludge. And yeah. I think that's like so much more better. Uh, speaking of Maryland saying goodbye, uh, the other townsfolk actually do have their own goodbyes. They're just shown on the deleted scenes. Yeah, they got some deleted scenes for this episode. I think I mentioned the one with the Japanese soldier man saying goodbye to them and handing them some like a takeout box of sushi. It's like, don't tell anyone about me. I'm staying here. You know, I just want to be left alone. The other deleted scenes, I think, are probably not as necessary to the episode, but I think... It's definitely important for a fan of the show to watch these deleted scenes if you can. The sequence with Marilyn saying, you know, looking up and saying goodbye as Joel fades away um, would probably be accompanied with a couple other short little moments. Like there's one when it's a deleted scene. Uh, Shelly wakes up in the middle of the night. Holling is sitting in bed or laying in bed. He's already awake. Shelly wakes up and she says, I just had this weird feeling like Dr. Fleischman was here. And Holling says, I know. Very short little thing. And there's a little thing with Maurice as well. He's like reading a book in his reading chair at night. He's in his robe, drinking a cup of tea. And he takes off his reading glasses and starts to look around kind of curiously, kind of very similar to Marilyn, but he doesn't say anything. So I imagine they probably like intercut these things together in that little sequence and uh, probably felt, you know, as the Marilyn scene already feels a little Twin Peaksy and strange, probably felt a little too woo-woo to include everything there. But I thought it was interesting that the, the intention was to to show a shockwave through the town. Like, it makes sense on paper, I guess. <laughs> right. And to top it all off, the final deleted scene is Maggie returning back from dropping Joe off, presumably at the airport. Uh, and I don't. I don't think <laughs> no, he rode no, no. the ferry. No, he's uh, he's in. He went. He disappeared, man. He's gone. 
<laughs> that would be, is it even possible to ride a ferry from Alaska to New York <laughs> without having to dip below South America? Can you, can you cut between Mexico and South America to like cut through that channel? Yeah, there's like the, the, the Panama Canal, I guess. But yeah, can you go through the Panama Canal? <laughs> I just want to also say there are definitely people out there, and I don't think they're wrong, that have the opinion that Joel is not in New York either in the end. Oh, yeah, like you got hypothermia and died and like hallucinated it? (laughs) No, there are people who think like, yeah, he's like still in Mananash or he's ascended or something, you know. No, it's, I'm not trying to laugh. I think that's a no. I think that that's like I'm, I'm just, not I'm making fun of that. Sorry that I said it that way. That's a really dumb I'm not way making to say fun it. of that at all. I, I think that's yeah. a very valid uh, opinion. It's just like, <laughs> I said ascended. Sorry. It's it's just such a funny contrast against what we <laughs> right. came to our conclusions, and their conclusion was like, no, no, no. I think like metaphorically, he yeah. like went to a, a higher to the higher heavens. <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah, I do think, you know, there's a lot of ways to interpret the ending. There are, you know, people out there who, who still say that Joel is not in, Joel's in Alaska, you know? Mm. And I think that's, that's, I think it's open to interpretation, you know? I think so too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But the final deleted scene kind of leaves it more concrete because Maggie says, she goes in to the brick and the old townsfolk are saying like, is he, did he actually leave? And Maggie's mm-hmm. like, Yeah. He left. He's gone. And the only thing he left here was his hat. And she gives it to Chris because it seems like he was the one that was most impacted by Joel's departure. Yeah. It's an interesting, it's a powerful scene because it starts with everyone in the brick and everyone's quiet. And they all seem to be waiting. A lot of people are actually like looking out the window, waiting for someone to approach. Hauling announces to everyone, she's here. And no one says anything. They She answers and they're all waiting for her to talk. It's like Ruthann, Ed, Maurice, Chris, Shelley, you know, the whole cast. Ed asks, where's Dr. Fleischman? And as you said, Maggie's like, he's gone. He went home is what she says. That's all she says. Some of the final lines here, Holling says, well, that's that. Shelley says, yeah. Ruthann says, I wish him well. And then Maurice says, gone home? Bogoslav Island? What the hell is that supposed to mean? And Ed says, I don't know, could happen, suggesting that, you know, there's there's a way in our magical realism of the show that Joel is magically transported from Bogoslav Island to Staten Island. Yeah, the townsfolk are left a little bit stunned. I mean, I guess when you look at it from their perspective, it makes total sense because it's not like he told them that they were, he was going on a quest. He only told yeah. Maggie. Mm-hmm. So one day they think he's a Metanash and the next day he... Straight up left. Yeah. And like I was saying, we, you know, like like we were saying, we kind of get that with Chris's ending there about him just kind of lying to himself because he couldn't face his inner turmoil of losing Joel, you know? I'm glad we see that in this episode, the effects of Joel leaving. And I really think this is a an interesting thing to watch to see how the rest of the town folk, how it was written that they would have reacted in the scene or you know, how, how it hit them. I understand though, how it is kind of, it's kind of stark. It's kind of a downer. It's kind of a little depressing. So it might kind of steal the energy of the ending as we're kind of ramping up from Joel seeing the jeweled city, you know, in the, in the deep of the forest and then disappearing. And then, you know, the Staten Island ferry sequence, you know, I can understand that losing steam if we put this scene in between those, but this deleted scene does have another little addendum at the end here. Phil walks over to Chris after this is all kind of shaking out. Chris has gotten the hat, I guess. And Phil invites Chris over to uh, to share those beers 
that Chris gave him. And apparently he's also got some caribou steaks that they can grill up and things have mended and patched up and they're about to go. Like, I think immediately after this, they're about to go hang out, which, which is great. Yeah. Passing of the torch right there. Well, all right, Charles, I think that's all we have to say for now about the quest, but as is common with this podcast, we like to bring on a guest every episode to talk about the episode. And in season six, we've asked fans of the show to submit their thoughts, voice recordings. What did they think about this episode and how did it affect them? And for this week, we've got listener Alon. We've actually um, gotten some fan mail from Alon before and we've uh, corresponded over Twitter many times. I believe we've probably read some of our interactions on the podcast before. Alon is from Israel and let's go ahead and listen and see what he has to say about the quest. How do you keep the one you love? Hi, Leon Charles. Alon here from Israel. I want to begin by telling you how I encountered uh, Northern Exposure. The show was uh, aired here uh, a few months late after it was aired in uh, the States in the beginning of the 90s, but I was too young to be the target audience, let's say. I was more interested in watching cartoons, but it was aired on uh, cable at, in reruns in uh, the beginning of the 2000s, and I was uh, a teenager there then and felt a little bit like a fish out of water like Joel and Cicely felt like, like home. And I fell in love with the show and with the characters. When I encountered your podcast, I was very excited and I went to watch again the series and the feelings of warmth and comfort came back when I heard the, the theme song start about the quest, it's a bittersweet moment. We say goodbye to Joel. I have to say that I really didn't like the part of the episode with Chris and Bernard. It's very unlike Chris to be like that, even if he misses Joel. And Bernard comes from nowhere without any context. Suddenly he's a lawyer. It's not really believable, but... I think it's my favorite episode this season and one of my favorites all this series because of the story of Joel and Maggie and Hero's journey coming to an end. We meet uh, Adam again. I have to say, and I hope I don't spoil anything, that when I first watched the show after this episode, I watched another one or two and I couldn't watch anymore. And... When your podcast began, I watched the series from beginning to end, and I still feel like that. I think it should have been the last episode, but it's such a northern exposure, if you can say that, plot, this magical realism, that sad love loss between Joel and Maggie, and I think it's very close to reality, to what happened behind the scenes, that... Uh, Rob Morrow wanted to leave the show to start a movie career and start a new things in life, new beginnings. I think he didn't really connect it to the on-again, off-again plot anymore with Maggie, with the script, and he wanted to find his way back uh, to find a new career, maybe. The Jewel City was New York after all, and Joel is coming back home, and Maggie finds that 
she belongs to Sicily and we say goodbye. And I think that Sicily is a state of mind. I hope I didn't talk too much. Thank you for the very lovely podcast and all these episodes with you in my ear. And uh, we'll see you in Sicily. All right. That was Alon with his thoughts for the episode. And I thought it was very interesting that he always had this feeling of warmth and comfort returned to him whenever he watched Northern Exposure, because to him, Sicily fit like home. Yeah, I think we've said it on the podcast before, but, uh, you know, I didn't, I don't always listen to the theme song. I think when I first uh, was watching the show back in the day with our friend Jay on DVD, we might've like fast forwarded through it, or sometimes we might've listened to it. And today, you know, I'll fast forward through it, or I might like pause and be like, I want to hear this again. This is a pretty good uh, David Schwartz original. So the music is definitely part of it, but also... I've mentioned this before on the podcast too, especially after we've like taken a break, Charles, or it's been a, if it's been a while since we've watched an episode, even if it's like not a good episode, I'm like, God, I'm just so glad to be back in Sicily. Like this feels, it's kind of hard for them to mess it up sometimes. It's like, they could really just do anything and I would be happy to be here. But so much of the time, it's just an amazing piece of television, piece of writing of, yeah, it's just amazing work. So it's, it's just a great show to watch. Right. It's a universal experience that crosses the boundaries of not just America, but to all the other different countries that can relate to the experiences that are being done here. Uh, Alain remarked that he did not like the Chris and Bernard storyline because he felt that it was, one, uncharacteristic of Chris to act that way, and two, unrealistic of Bernard to act that way since he's an accountant. Yeah. He even says, like, you know, even if it... The ending shows that it's just uh, it's just Chris that misses Joel. It's not not a fan, even knowing that, because it's just too far, step too far, perhaps. I think Charles, you had a similar reaction where you're like, this doesn't need to be in the episode. Maybe in like an aftermath episode later. Um, for me, I was okay with it. I liked that representation, but I totally agree that there are moments in this episode when Chris is like, I just want to make his life a living hell. Where I'm like, this is. So hard to believe. And it's more effective. I think the the climax of that plot line is more effective because we don't know that it's going to flip, that there is, it is a reveal where it's like, oh, wow, wait, Chris is actually, and it's just like, he's, you know, the actor's doing such a great performance. It makes it stronger there because we don't realize what's going on until that moment. But because of that, it's also just like, Throughout so much of this episode, you're like, man, I really hate this Chris plotline. I really don't like what's going on. Like, Chris, we love Chris. Why is he acting like so mean to Phil? It makes no sense. So, yeah, it's a tricky thing to pull off, I think, this plotline. And I would probably agree with Alon that I don't think they, I, I don't think a lot of people would really like this. I like the ending, but. The rest of it is uh, tricky. Right, right. And speaking on a similar topic of that, he mentioned that it was really hard to watch the other episodes following this one. Yeah, he mentioned when he first watched it as a teenager, he remembers seeing this episode and then watched a couple more and then just couldn't continue. He didn't want to continue. And then when he found out about this podcast, he rewatched the show again. And really, you know, as we said, like that theme song brought him back to feelings of warmth and comfort. 
But even, uh, you know, years later now watching it, I think it's a similar situation with the lawn. Could not watch anymore. Well, we hope you you watch more just for the podcast. If you want to <laughs> comment on uh, <laughs> on what you see, let us know because we're gonna we're gonna watch the the next eight episodes. I think Alon said uh, that this should have been the last episode. I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of fans, will say that this could this should have been the last episode. And yeah, it is a shame. I think we kind of talk about this, Charles, maybe on the Patreon and just in episodes leading up to this, how they know that Joel, this is like the last episode where they are paying Joel. Like this is the last episode that Rob Morrow is contractually obligated to do or whatever. So they know they still have eight more episodes after. So how do you, how do you make that work? You know, it's like, I almost wish that Joel could have stayed for eight more episodes. I know that's a lot of time, but it's like, dang. Or yeah. I mean, it's just, I, I guess they couldn't, I don't know what would have been easier. Could they have just like ended the series at 15 or they were probably contractually obligated to deliver this many episodes, you know? So mm. they had to give eight more. Yeah. There's no way they would have known unless this dispute happened earlier in the season. And even then, like, you know, I, I can really see the pros and cons of both because like realistically, if you're a creator and you're, you're employing like hundreds and hundreds of people from right? set dressers yeah. to writers to the people that scout all locations to animal handlers to the people who compose the music, all of them are, this is all a job to them. So for you to be like, oh, I'm just going to cut it that 15 because I just, you know, I just want to, you're denying them eight episodes full of work and, True. Yeah. you know, industry work, uh, just a steady paycheck. So it's a hard one to really try to compromise. Yeah, you can't really end it there. I, I just wish, uh, yeah, maybe if they had more time to kind of uh, work on this. I mean, they definitely knew what was coming with this episode, so they wrote it. Uh, but uh, but yeah, Alon says that this is his, you know, one of his favorite episodes this season and one of the favorites of the series overall because of the Joel and Maggie storyline. So how would you rank it, Charles? Is this one of your favorites of the season? Uh, it's definitely a favorite of the seasons. I don't know if it would place in the top five favorite episodes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I would. Yeah. I'm asking myself that same question. Definitely one of my favorites this season. I really like it. I I don't know. I, I remember, I mean, I've said it on the podcast. I really, really liked the season premiere. It was just a pretty interesting start to season six. That's definitely a big one for me. Uh, as for top five episodes, I mean, we're definitely going to have to talk about that in our series retrospective at the end. But uh, yes, I, I don't really know. I don't know if this would make the top five. Uh, it's possible, but because uh, it is a really great episode, I think. Um, finally, I think towards the end there, Alon says Sicily is a state of mind. I think that, you know, we're kind of talking a little bit about that before, Charles. I think uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, Alon, thank you so much for recording and sending into the podcast uh, you, you didn't talk too long. I think you said that in your recording. <laughs> don't worry at all. I would have listened to much more. Uh, so please don't be a stranger right in. And, uh, yeah, we hope you do continue watching a couple more episodes, at least for our sake. You can let us know what you think of these episodes, uh, as we're recording and talking about, uh, Northern Exposure. But Charles, I want to go ahead and say that I think we're going to take a brief hiatus for the summer now after we finish the quest. We're in the summer and still recording. I think the same thing happened last year where, you know, in, in times past, we try to we try to take our hiatus or season break uh, before summer because it gets so hot here. It's kind of hard to record uh, even indoors. I've turned my fan off and my AC off so it doesn't make too much noise. But we're going to take 
a little bit of time off uh, to get past summer and we'll be back in the fall, but we'll still be on Twitter and Facebook. So we're still active there while we're not releasing episodes. And on our Patreon, patreon.com slash Northern Overexposure Podcast, we do a monthly bonus episode. So we're still going to be recording uh, at least one episode a month over on the Patreon. Our latest, which we just posted, is a farewell to Fleischman. We recorded it, Charles, before you watched this episode. So it's kind of all about talking about Joel before this ending here. You're, you're kind of unaware of what would happen next. But while we're taking a break now, we will be returning in the fall with the 16th episode of Northern Exposure. We got eight episodes left. That'll be our last block. The 16th episode is called Lucky People. And uh, yeah, I mean, we know that Joel's gone. Um, do you have any predictions on where the story will go from here? Uh, it's got to be something that's focused on Phil Capra. Like, I, yeah. I can't imagine the doctor leaving and then the new doctor doesn't also get a leaves. plot line. <laughs> He's like, I'm going to go too. <laughs> yeah. So I imagine that it's going to be something about that. But we'll find out once we pop on over to the fall for our very last eight episodes, which is really crazy to think about. I, I know that we're like, we've been a little bit sporadic in our posting, you know, which has been very, very busy right here. But, you know, uh, the finale is upon us. We're really getting to it. Yeah, we're coming to the end. Uh, listener, let us know what you think about the quest and what we have in store for us after this. Again, please no spoilers, at least no major spoilers for Charles. I'm aware of some things that will happen that probably going to, uh, you know, we probably won't appreciate too much, uh, Charles, but um, I'm hoping that there's still some good moments. I remember the series finale slightly uh, being a bit powerful, but we'll see. Maybe, maybe we'll be completely upset. <laughs> Let us know, you know, what are, what are we in for? Try, try not to give us too many uh, spoilers. But Charles, I'll talk to you on the Patreon soon. And uh, until then, I'll see you when we come back uh, for the rest of season six. All right. I'll see you when we come back. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Alon for being our guest. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com at Northern Overpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northern overexposure podcast. And of course, thank you for listening.